Hello and welcome to the Show Up podcast. This is a place where we explore leadership and what that means for us, where we aim to show up with honesty, vulnerability and curiosity. Use this space to explore what leadership means in your world and how you can show up to be the leader you want to be, whatever that means for you. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Show Up podcast. It's a very exciting day for us because I've got two people who I like a lot on as guests uh, alongside me and Jamie and Graham is listening in the background for our reflection session afterwards. And we're going to be talking about a topic really close to my heart. Does that mean you don't like me? Sorry, Jamie. So you've got two people you like a yes, lot. Yes, only, and only me. two people I like. Yeah. And <laughs> okay. Jamie, yeah. Great slip start. Of the, slip of the tongue. I'm <laughs> fond of Jamie as well. Um, and we're talking, I also care a lot about, which is neurodiversity. Um, and I have some personal stories and experiences around that. So we're going to explore neurodiversity today with Adam Tobias and Rosie Sherry. So Adam I've known since 2017 when I was a client of his and he runs uh, a international talent business called Inventum Group and in particular has a strong spike in inclusion consultancy for that talent group, a business that he started I guess nearly 20 years ago Um, and I've just had a lot of fun talking to Adam and his his business partners over the years. and various different guises and we have rosie sherry the legendary rosie sherry who goes by the job title community executive officer and uh just rosie just blows me away by what she's achieved as a founder as a community builder uh as a mother because she's got five children one of the few people who have more children than i do um rosie's got five kids and unschools them whilst building all kinds of crazy things and rosie and i met through a community that she started called the independent for independent uh builders founders etc and we've connected over neurodiversity and parenting and all sorts of things over the last year or so so it's wonderful to have you both here thank you for joining yeah, us welcome welcome thank you and we're talking about neurodiversity and we're talking about that in the context of our listeners who are generally speaking leaders in what we call the golden age of leadership age 25 to 40 just stepping into leadership positions whether that's leading companies or communities or teams or what whatever it is for them in their context and we often think about that in a in language around conscious leadership and ways of being self-aware and showing up in a positive leadership frame and i'm very conscious around the importance of cognitive diversity and the challenges of leading teams that are cognitively diverse and that's part of the conversation i wanted to have today but i wanted to open because i know rosie adam you've both had a journey with neurodiversity in your own lives recently and i know you speak to people a lot about these topics so rosie maybe i'll come to you first about what what is it that you've observed in terms of neurodiversity and the the things that you've learned about yourself or others over the over the last couple of years yeah I I think I think it's interesting um because I I got diagnosed officially last year so I'm 44 now 
Um, and obviously, like when you get diagnosed later in life, you start looking back at um, your whole life and you try to process all the things and how you, how you see things um, differently. And I, I guess what, one of the biggest things that I go back to, especially like when, when it relates to kind of community and, and business and, and work, is that I've naturally kind of uh, been a bit allergic to, to the system. Um, and <laughs> as in like, you know, like not holding down a job, not putting up with like how people do things, finding it too frustrating. Um, and as a natural consequence, I ended up doing my own thing because I felt like it was the only way to kind of survive in a, in a relatively uh, sane way. Um, and and then like as as I grew a business and as I was able to grow a business, and looking back like through the neurodiversity lens, that, that I kind of started to see understand why, <laughs> you know, all the reasons why. Um, I couldn't hold down a job or didn't want to. And a lot of it was down to like, I think my personal needs or my preferences of how to do things or not not wanting to do things like how other people wanted, you know, wanted things done or, you know, things like didn't make sense or just um, felt like busy work or didn't, you know, there were so many things that like, um, I guess like my character is like I want to push forward, I want to take action, I, I want I want to make a difference. And if I if I get stuck in work where I feel like I'm not growing, like I have I feel like I have to quickly move on. Um, and maybe that's a boredom thing. Maybe it's you know I, I don't know what it is, but um, yeah, I have to be motivated. And I think a lot of work environments. Um, haven't haven't motivated motivated me, so I've had to kind of do my own thing, um, which has sacrifices. But I think there's a lot of upsides if you can make it work as well. Thank you very much. Really fascinating that. And it's an interesting observation, I think, that, that within our little independent community, it seems to be overweighted towards neurodiverse people who are working independently for for many of those reasons, I think that they've found the world of work just doesn't suit them for a whole bunch of different reasons. Adam, I guess that's pretty central to the work that you do from an inclusion perspective. What what have you learned in terms of neurodiversity? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I think, you know, I echo a lot of, you know, pretty much everything Rosie said there, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I've considered myself pretty much unemployable for quite a long time. And I think that's probably, uh, probably less of a reality now than it was 20 years ago when I started my business. I think there is much more awareness. And I don't think I'm unemployable. I think the systems of work made it incredibly difficult for me to fit and to be successful in a in an environment where perhaps I didn't rub people up the wrong way or I didn't say the wrong thing or I understood you know, the context or there were some boundaries that were probably a bit safer. Um, so I think that has changed. I probably think I'm more employable now in some ways, uh, because I think there's an understanding around neurodivergent conditions and the strengths uh, or the potential strengths. I don't like labeling people with neurodivergent conditions with superpowers. I've heard that a lot. I don't like that personally, but that's my view. 
Um, but yeah, I, I've certainly struggled. I recognise it all around me, though. I spot traits. I try not to diagnose other people all the time. I spend my, my life doing that and really recognising someone, someone's right to autonomy in this space. I think it's really important, actually. So telling people I think they might be neurodivergent to get a diagnosis, they've got to be really careful of doing that. But what I see is I see the world more able to accommodate for lots of different reasons uh neurodivergent uh folk i think the world is far more aware of this topic now um you know the the depictions in the media uh you know adhd for example was something you know little boys had and they ran around and they were hyperactive and people with autism were you know mathematical savants like you know rain man you know that was the kind of media depiction of of, of a lot of these sort of you know these conditions um and that's changed it's certainly changed in the uk i think from what i've i've observed i don't know it's hard to speak for other places um but yeah so that's what i've observed more openness more acceptance and i think some more flexibility slowly coming but um, may i just ask um because you talk about a change over that 20 year period that journey rosie i mean have you noticed that change yourself and if i may then just add a second question to it given the forces in society like the media educational establishment politics just simply families in society where do you think the biggest changes have been uh, coming from um i've noticed a change um but i think i think it's easy to kind of see the change once you're in in it in the world um because I, I can look back to even three or four years ago and, and not really being aware of neurodiversity. So it still feels like pretty pretty new to us. Um and it's and and then like I guess like on top of that there's there's the added um kind of challenge around neurodiversity with women, right? So there's less research, less women have been diagnosed and there's a lot more women getting diagnosed like in their 40s and 50s um and there's barely been any research so it's like um it's only like the past five or ten years really that things you know autism and neurodiversity for women has really been um i guess people are becoming more aware but the more i've dived, dived into into it i i've kind of come to the conclusion that no one really knows. I think no one really understands any of it. Um, I feel like the professionals don't understand and or like they're discovering things every few months, every year. Things are changing. Our understanding is changing. Um, as neurodivergent people, we're seeking understanding. We're sharing. There's communities uh, kind of popping up. Um, there's all sorts of like stories that you, you start hearing and sharing and um and you start to recognize like what what are the things that make you neurodiverse but then you start to kind of see like actually it's just so different for everyone and what I think like, the, the more I go into it, the more confused I get it's like what you know what is it um 
So yeah, the change. And what was the other question? Well, just where are those changes coming from? You've mentioned a couple of bits there. I was thinking about the, you know, the forces in society, media, schools, but the medical establishments, just general societal awareness. But you mentioned a little bit about that. So where do you feel, and this to Adam as well, where do you feel that some of these changes have been mostly, or maybe in a variety of ways, driven from? The people, right? Discovering, sharing. Did I say community? People sharing stories, uh, gathering in places. I'm, I'm in a great uh, Facebook group for women o- over 40, um, autistic women over 40. Um, so it's very specific uh, audience, very quite strict. Like, you know, they do check everyone who goes in and maintain it. And it's really, you know, <laughs> interesting to hear the stories. And um, uh, and I just think like the, the more people open up, the more um, or the less baggage there is around the label. Um, I think that's that's how change will come. Um, I hope change will come with the education system. I, I think it's like terrible for neurodivergent people. I think, you know, I just well, once once you're out of the system, I I just can't go back into it now. It's just like there's no way that I would put my kids into that system unless unless they want it. Um, and then from that aspect, there's uh, families and, and children who home educate. Um, now you see that there's like just like a huge percentage of them are actually neurodiverse. And that is why they are not in the school system. And they start to notice that actually the school system does not work for them. And it's um, really bad for, for them as human beings, really bad for their health. Uh, the men- mental health, um, but you you kind of have to step out of the system to 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 see that, and when you're in the system, it's you know it's, you're kind of like in a bubble, and it's and it's hard when people all around you are putting pressure on you to uh, conform to a way that just um, is detrimental to you as a person or the children. Thank you. Very interesting there. What you're actually saying. You. Very the... interesting there. Sorry, Jamie. Yeah, what you're seeing there is that there's a school system that doesn't work, and then there's a work system that doesn't work, and these things are changing. But I mean, the the school system is going to change very slowly, and probably never enough for a lot of people. I remember my so my daughter was diagnosed uh, autistic two years ago, and I remember one of my friends saying to me, "It's a superpower," and I had just got back from the school run where she'd been in tears for twenty minutes because. She couldn't bring herself to step across the threshold into school. And I was just thinking, this isn't a superpower. There are elements that she's better than average on some things, and there's elements where she finds life much, much harder. And that adaptation of the school environment and the work environment is still not really happening. And it's such a, for my, to my mind, it's such a loss for society that people are not feeling not being put into environments where they can thrive because of an arbitrary set of expectations and rules around it. Adam, how do you find that people can tackle that and make it a more positive environment? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, from, you know, I'm not going to even attempt to, to right the wrongs of the education system, either in the UK or anywhere, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I mean, I was lucky I survived, you know, and in some ways I 
was thrived and i'm very lucky that my kids go to schools that their differences are supported and recognized to a certain degree um i think the world of work is slightly different uh, now and i see that a lot and I, i'm you rosie's right saying obviously the more you know about it the more you're aware you're more tuned to the noise that goes on around about the topic which is absolutely true but i do see a general increase in interest from organizations certainly speaking to me and uh, about the topic and there's a there's an interest and a desire to make workplaces or certain companies are looking to make their workplaces more neuro inclusive not everybody um, you know, some are doing it from an ethical perspective. They think it's the right thing to do. More often than not, it's driven by people with personal interest in the space. So either people at senior positions who either are themselves diagnosed uh, or uh, more often than not, have a child who is diagnosed and therefore want to do so and in a position to do something about it. So I see that. So there's that kind of ethical aspect. I see... Um, the risk aspects as well so risk management looking you know looking to be seen to be inclusive from a kind of from a, uh, a csr or an esg perspective i see that a lot and we also start to see some organizations looking at it as a performance opportunity we kind of thought dabbling in that superpower space again right but what I have seen with some forward-thinking organisations, I'm not going to name names because anyone who I've worked with who I don't think is forward-thinking will probably be upset with me, so it's probably best that I don't. So, um, but actually creating an environment where, you know, someone can thrive and be really, really good at it. Now, look, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, you know, like I said, we're not all mathematical savants. I'm pretty good at working out percentages, but I'm pretty crap at all other, you know, my nine and 11-year-old's math homework stumped me, right? So... I do not fall into the math superpower space. However, I have seen organizations really tap into generalized skills um, around certain neurodiverse or new, neurodivergent traits, particularly around autism. But I have seen people work really well with other conditions where a workplace has been created that is more friendly. And that might just be some really basic things like, you know, some education, you know for everybody not just managers but for some education to understand what these conditions might look like how they might show up in the workplace what you know opportunities and challenges there might be um, how we can support using technology or some really basic stuff like if people you know we're less in the workplace now but when people are in the workplace you know if you want to sit in a quieter part of the office you want to wear noise cancelling headphones you want to leave earlier you want to get to work earlier to avoid rush hour you don't want to go to the christmas party you know, basic stuff like that, which is totally okay. Um, just saying, we're neuroinclusive. We don't know everything, but we want to get better, right? Having a line manager who wants to listen and learn, non-judgmental, approaches it with compassion and kindness. I mean, these are all kind of buzzwords, aren't they? I, I appreciate that. But what, what the way I uh, approach it with clients is, I say, look, if you really want to hire neurodivergent people of any kind. What I would do is don't start with the job, start with the line manager, right? Start with the person who's interested, who who's willing to give up some time to learn and is willing to be compassionate. Once you've got a case study internally, right, that's quite an easy thing to sell. Yeah. Um, but yeah, don't expecting superpowers, don't expect sort of mathematics, you know, just creating a space. It's interesting though, sorry, just to kind of CIPD, Chartered Institute of I want to say personal development. I think that's right. 
did a study, and I can't name the study, but it was about four or five years ago now. Um, and what they found was that neurodivergent uh, employees or workers were the most innovative uh, of all the different employee groups they looked at. They were the most, they had the lowest absenteeism, which I thought was really interesting, of all the different employee groups they looked at. And they, had, they showed a high degree of professional ambition. So these impressions that we want, we want hardworking, loyal, you know, uh, creative, intelligent, innovative people who are ambitious. Sounds like the ideal employee group to me. If you can make a space that works, then you've got potentially fantastic people. I'm really struck by that, particularly given tying back to what Rosie said earlier on about one of the reasons why you found some of the employment environments you were in difficult to stay in, or in fact, you um, you were allergic to them for a variety of reasons. But he said, when you felt that it was not helping you grow, when you were not motivated for some reason, intrinsically or by the outside, you're like, goodbye, I'm off. I'm going to I'm going to go find this somewhere else. So it's fascinating that that research actually does relate to Rosie's only personal personal experience of this. I can see that in my children as well. As soon as they lose interest in doing something, there's no no chance getting them to, to do it. Um, so, you know, through that kind of thinking and through kind of thinking about how I feel about things when I'm doing things and uh, I then look at my kids and um, we of, we can often get into the mindset that, oh, they have to do this, this is really important or because, you know, it's going to impact their future. Um, but then, like, if you place that same behavior on yourself or imagine someone, like, treating you like that, you can actually start to see why they don't want to do it or why it would be torturous for them or why why it's you know why it doesn't make sense so it's like my whole attitude with kind of raising my, my kids at the moment is like they have to want to do what they're doing um and that's kind of like the the advantage of homeschooling is that we pick and choose what what they sign up to and at any point they can they can say no to something. Um, but the fact that what they do attend, what they're attending is something that they say yes to and they're excited about. And the level of kind of focus and engagement um, because of that, um, they get so much more out of it than they would at school because they want to be there. Um, and that that's so powerful. And I don't think people realize how powerful that actually is mm. um and then as as parents it's like our job then to to try to find those things that will nurture their their their, their person at the level that they're at right now and sometimes it can be like really small things that just make the whole environment like re really uh stressful um so like when, when we detect the stress, we we try to tackle it like stri straight away. And like we can see it when they're stressed. We can see when they're not happy. Um, it happened recently, recently with my 12-year-old who has been doing badminton and like really enjoying it like once a week with a friend for the session for one hour. And then they moved him up to a two-hour session and more advanced. Um, and he hated it. He absolutely hated it, and it was like really stressing him out. 
Um, and and a big part of it was like the competition aspect had changed and they were getting really kind of like goal driven and um, there was writing as part of it that he just didn't want to do. Um, and it just like <laughs> went for two sessions and he was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Um, so we changed it. You know, we didn't push. We, we tried after one session, he didn't want to do it, but he tried another one. We tried to encourage him. He's like, let's, let's try it one more time. But after that session, he was like, no, can't do it. So we felt, we swapped, we swapped the day and it's, it's fine again. It's like a, you know, less, less pressurized environment. Um, but you know, it's those things that we can, you know, learn, learn to identify and learn to encourage what's good for them right now. And that, um, I don't believe stress is good for them. Um, I don't think it's um, spoiling them. Um, I just think it's like when people are in a good spot, they they thrive a lot better. Um, but that doesn't mean they'll always get it their way, but we can at least try and we can work with them and try. And, and actually, like, by doing that, our relationship, um, let's say parent to child, is so much stronger because of that. Um, and I can almost see it in the fact that my three youngest kids haven't really been to proper school whilst my two older ones have. Um, and whilst we're still like strong as a family, I, I kind of feel like there's something different there that um, because of our awareness um, of neurodiversity as well with our younger ones, I feel like we can handle things better and we see things and as parents, we, we try our best to kind of accommodate um, the children. Um, but then I, I, I take that to life as well. It's not just children. So I take the same philosophy to, to people. It's like, if something's caught, you know, causing someone stress, it's like, we can find another way around how to solve a problem, you know? One of the age, what what, yeah, one of the age old questions and, and balancing acts, particularly for the kind of leaders that we're describing in, in the golden age, that sort of entering leadership is, how do you get that balance between perform, which is achieving the goals the business is setting for you and you've got to get X done by Y in order for us to continue to grow as a business. But actually the growth side, which is what we're talking about here, is also vitally important for people generally. But in this case, what's really interesting is how quickly somebody can disconnect from wanting to be in the environment if the growth isn't there. Whilst at the same time, there's possibly also an, another mix in here, which is masking um, in a professional workspace, potentially slightly different from a parental child uh, relationship where you can pick up really, really subtle uh, changes in, in the things and the stress signals are probably there. In a workplace, in a conversation I was in last week, um, the topic of masking came up, how difficult it is if you're a leader to understand if truly what you're seeing is masked behavior, because that's the way somebody's learned to cope, where it's actually concealing stress. Maybe the, the first signs of overwhelm in a, a situation where the balance is wrong. There's too much perform rather than enough growth. So I'm just fascinated by that whole journey and the, the application of the parental lessons into the workplace. I think it's really, really interesting. Well, actually, on the masking point to what Rosie said earlier, um, the medical understanding of neurodiverse conditions is evolving so much in the societal understanding. And there are a lot of people who will be neurodiverse with no awareness that they're neurodiverse. And so they have no awareness that they're actually masking. 
and masking is exhausting. And so then there's this whole energy balance and burnout piece, as you talk about, Jamie, that like, people may not even be aware of. Rosie, I was really struck by, I think there's two big things in what you said there about the your experiences with your children and your own experiences. One, it strikes me that as a, if you're a leader of a team with neurodiverse people in it, maybe there's a need to be really over-indexing on the kind of the why of what you're asking them to do and the motivation and the vision and the values and all and the purpose and all of that stuff, which actually is just good practice leadership anyway. But the reality is if you don't get that stuff right and you've got neurodiverse people in your team, you might lose them faster than you might than you'd lose others. So that was one piece. And then the other piece was around this stress management. And actually stress can be I, I often think for for myself and for my daughter that the kind of the base load of of stress is just higher and it's easier for us to tip over the edge. And in her case, that tips over and mine to an extent, tips over into anxiety and paralysis. And other kids I've seen it tips over into anger. But it's mm. there's a higher level of sensitivity to that stress. So you've got this need for really understanding whether or not somebody is stressed and helping them manage through that and a need for giving them purpose and and uh, meaning in the work that they're doing so that they're bought into it. And actually both of those things are just good good leadership in general. You've just, the need, if you want to be really good at this, is to lean into those things and have a hell of a lot of curiosity about what motivates the person in your team and how they're coping with life. Yeah. But is there, yeah. Adam, is there more to it than that? Is there more than just, Well, I think this is just good leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think it is good. I mean, I think, you know, if you create a good leader will create an environment where everybody thrives, right? And if you are focused on creating a neuroinclusive environment, the likelihood is everyone, uh, neurotypical or not, will actually thrive. You know, we, from a workplace perspective, you know, I suppose the dream or the, the, the likelihood, and it touched on what Rosie said, is creating jobs around the skills of the people rather than trying to stuff people in the holes of the jobs, right? I mean, you know, we spend our lives trying to get good at things that we're crap at. Excuse my language. Um, and we don't spend enough time. This is generally speaking, in my opinion, we don't spend enough time focusing on the things that we are naturally very, very good at. And we don't spend the time really polishing those skills. And we, you know, and I think that's something that I found particularly stressful. The things that I was really good at when I was in the workplace a long time ago. For, I mean, I'm still in the workplace, but, you know, working for someone else was having to do things. And and I knew that I was really good at some other stuff. And I, if I just focused on that, that would be the asset for the organisation. Let's build my role around that rather than these other kind of things. So I think that's important, building the role around the skills. That's where you're going to get the innovation. That's where you're going to get the loyalty. That's where you're going to get the super concentration, the focus, the interest, the enjoyment. If someone's interested in something and enjoys it, the likelihood is they're going to keep at it until they become really good at it, right? And that's where they find pleasure. I find pleasure in certain things and happiness in the, in, in the workplace. I, I don't know who it was um, who said, and it's a variation of it, but, you know, we pay rent on our, on our masking and the rent keeps going up, right? So the cost of masking gets higher and higher as you get older and older and older and it gets to the point where... Um, so how do you create an environment where the golden generation of leaders 
I'm not quite in that generation, unfortunately, anymore. But um, oh, don't be harsh on yourself. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, just good leadership. What can you do to make an environment really, really neuroinclusive? Well, you know, again, you know, one size doesn't necessarily fit all, but you can do things like, you know, learning, education, finding out about individuals, learning about your team members, understanding about new different conditions, thinking about different career pathways for your team members. You know, not everyone wants to progress. Again, you know, they don't want to go from the one hour session to the two hour session, but they want to get really good at the one hour session. Right. And they want that to maybe reflect their seniority in the role, not necessarily about management or different roles, but actually having uh, being recognized for being very skilled at a particular thing. So I think actually having sort of hybrid career pathways is really, really helpful. I think leadership advocacy is really important. I think leaders need to say this is important to us as a business. All right. Leadership give momentum, they give pace, they give authority to this, right? So unless you've got leaders, either managers or leaders saying, you know, we care about neuro, neurodiversity in, in this workspace. Um, and don't just sort of talk about it every now and then, but talk about it a lot. Uh, thinking about flexible working, you know, how that works for people. COVID's been great for that. Um, technology, there's tons of awesome technology. I mean, I use a lot of to help me uh, to kind of keep focused in terms of what I'm doing and managing my workload. I have colleagues who help me, but I also have a lot of tech. I use a lot of project software that really helps me kind of keep on track of where I'm at. Um, I try to kind of put time limits on the stuff that I'm really interested in because I can get really, you know, I can go. So, you know, structure, communication, dialogue, being very specific, removing ambiguity in the workplace. And, you know, there's lots of other things you could do, but for me, kindness, right? Something wrong with a bit of kindness, is there a bit of compassion, nice to be. Um, so like, all of those things I think a good leader would do anyway, but it's about learning about individuals, trying to find out where those skills lie and really giving people more opportunity to do the things they're really, really good at. I'm also wondering, I, that all sounds like very good stuff. Definitely good stuff. I'm I'm also wondering, Rosie, about um, the role of communities within organisations. I know you're very big on community-led businesses, but it strikes me that if you can bring a sense of community into teams, not just not just community around customers, which I think most people miss. A lot of people misuse community and think of it as a marketing tool, but that sense of community within a business, surely that is a very helpful way of driving neuroinclusivity as well. I think so. Um, I think I'd love to see a future where there's like a community role instead of it just like being HR or something. There's actually like specific roles in some companies for um, either just like having it as like, part of your job but it's like let's dedicate some time to actually con connecting with each other and understanding each other or having it as you know something that as a role that someone has within the company um i have seen some roles some people building building internal communities there are some out there um but you know i, th I think a lot of companies kind of break down because of that it's like there's there's no connection, there's no understanding. Um, it leads to conflict, it leads to stress, and then just people just like 
you know, get up and move like I do. I love the idea of the communities starting to help unlock um, insight and potential in an organization. There's, And I think just to, to come back, I love the, Adam, you introduced the word compassion. Some of the leaders also need to be compassionate that they're not necessarily going to get that right the first time. They might be really interested in doing it and they really have the will, the interest to embrace it. However, and I've got one example of a guy who I met, CEO of a large uh, FTSE company, who he said he's had three attempts at creating communities in his business. And every time it's been him that's caused the problem. He created, first of all, a gender-based community set up. And then he said in the, the launch of the female community, women in business for his business, he said something which was dismissive of females in business. And they said, right, this is let's cancel this. So about six months later, he tried again. And he said, but this time, I'm not going to come up with the ideas. You tell me which communities need to exist. So he did that. And they came up and there was like 15 communities. And then suddenly there was competition between the communities for attention and funding. And he said, oh, that's just, this isn't working. So he's then had to find a balance. And he realized that the, the community, the creating a culture of inclusive communities is a really tricky thing to do as a leader. And it's got to be very organic and it's you've got to be quite willing to experiment and allow it to emerge within whatever constraints you have to impose as a business. But you've got to you could have just be compassionate with yourself. You can't necessarily guarantee, even if you're the leader, you know how to do it first time or second. And you know, there's a lot of it's another debate here, but you know, how do you who owns that community? who leads that community what's the governance around it all the really boring stuff that sort of sound and actually it's important for some of the reasons that you mentioned jamie but you know there's you know you don't want to make it so stifling that it doesn't actually allow people to benefit from being part of that community so yeah it's tough i've seen it unravel horribly um, I won't share them, but you know, really badly. Really, We're all yeah, saying, really put the names in the chat. Put the names in the chat. <laughs> Strikes me, Jamie, that uh, your the the person at the centre of that anecdote needs to engage Rosie for a bit of um, community building advice. Um, well, you know, saying well, negative you know, things about women and the launch of women in because. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I was I, yeah. I just a uh, memory just came up for me of the conversation we had a conversation on the last episode with Tony Quinlan talking about stories and particularly anecdotes and he had this wonderful idea of an anecdote circle which was essentially getting a team together for an hour hour and a half to just tell stories about themselves about their experiences on a theme or or what have you we were talking about examples of good leadership or examples of bad leadership I feel like in this context, that would be a really powerful thing for people to do is sit down with their teams and just listen to each other's anecdotes about their lives as a way of demonstrating that curiosity and compassion and building mini communities. Like, you know, a team of four or five people can be a mini community within a, within a business and it can then spiral from there. So I reckon those an anecdote think, circles is a, is a great way of doing that. I think that talks to the awareness side, which is something that Rosie you were talking about earlier on, the building of um, a degree of uh, interpersonal trust and connection. Is it okay to share my story if I hear your story? And I think it'd be really interesting to see how that would work. 
absolutely. There's there's also um, communication styles that I think a lot of people dismiss. Um, and a good example for that, like in companies often, or even just now, the example of a group circle. Um, I'm terrible at group circles. And it's actually a new divergent thing that I discovered is just like, there's a, for some reason, I'm okay, like with chats and stuff, like virtually, but when it's face to face, or you're not quite sure what's happening next, or you're trying to get your voice in, um, kind of like finding finding time, finding that opportunity um, to have your turn to speak can be really hard for some neurodivergent people. So things like group circles are actually very off-putting for some people. Um, and, and this is a challenge of like, you know, I guess trying to understand humans is like, how do you prefer to communicate or in what situations um, will you struggle? Because like there's like selective mutism, um, for example, like people just are unable to talk in, in certain situations. Um, and that and that's because not because they can't contribute. It's just like you know, it's just how they are. Um, and I've definitely had that in 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 the past where I just feel unable to speak up. And and it's uh, it's hard in a work environment because then all of a sudden, if you're not speaking up at the right moment, um, you're kind of like not seen as a leader, for example. Um, and I I used to. I, I said I said a couple of times in, in a job I had recently um to, to my boss, like when we were talking about like, you know, trying to plan stuff. And like he would ask me a question and I'd be like, I'll get back to you on that. Um I need time to think about that. And there were a couple of times that he gave me a a, a really strange look for that and he was kinda of say, I want an answer now and I'll say, Well, you know, I need I need time to process and think about it to actually give you a good answer. Um and I think it's those kind of things in work environments where certain behaviors are valued more than, uh, you know, like the quick answer is valued more than an answer that is given to you half an hour later or the next day. Yeah. Um, even if the one. Yeah, do, you want a, if do you want a quick answer or do you want a good answer? More time thinking about. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, so when, when we think of community, I think, like you know, that there's there's real valid valid reasons for trying to accommodate how how people, you know, want to connect and um, f- feel comfortable connecting, and um, you can only, um, I guess, like you know, there's there's that aspect of some some people don't know they're neurodiverse, so like they, you know, like a selective mute mute person. People would call them shy or quiet. It's that quiet person in the back. They're just quiet. They don't talk. But actually, you know, there might be that kind of disability aspect that people are just not aware of, or even the person, right? Um, and I've definitely had that. I've definitely been like the quietest person in the room, sitting in the back, because you know, in a in a group environment, I don't I don't want to talk. Um, but then I get get up on stage and and do do talks. So I come on podcasts, and it's not a problem. So some people like, you know, struggle to understand. Well, how can I do this when I can't do it in certain situations? But um, ho- hopefully that will come come with understanding, I guess. Yeah, 
that really resonates for me actually rosie um we need to start drawing this to to a close guys so i was just going to ask you each for your one one your one biggest tip for so a young leader who's leading a team and wants to make it as inclusive and welcoming and uh, effective as possible for neurodiverse people what would you say to that that person is the one biggest thing they should they should do Hmm. I never Adam, I'll come to you thing. first. Yeah, I never say one thing about anything. You know, I don't struggle with <laughs> it's a challenge. I, uh, you know, I think my biggest challenge actually is is knowing where to shut. Um, <laughs> and I think in my interests are the same for everyone's going to be interested in the things that I'm interested in, which I've learned. You know, I learned the hard way that they're really not. So, um, um, I think that really simply, I mean, it's really hard to say as you know one thing, but really simply just learning a bit about you know accepting not everybody is the same you know you might have a condition you might have a, a label that goes with that but there's a huge amount of variation within those conditions um so actually recognizing that people are different and actually good leadership is about understanding people understanding your people what their strengths are what what their capability is and that neuro diverse people can bring a huge amount of insights and, and difference because of that special interest to the workplace. Um, I think the, the best analogy I've ever heard of autism was it's like being a Mac on a Windows network. Um, and so just think about that, you know, think about it's not necessarily function, it's more communication, it's more the interaction that's the, the, the kind of the biggest challenge. So just be mindful of that, I think, let, teach, you know, there's loads of info out there and you know there's no excuse not to know about them that'd be me awesome thanks adam rosie what about your biggest single tip yeah i guess i'd uh focus on solving the problem and not giving too much attention like how you get there um or giving it attention but in in the way of like supporting people and helping people to solve the problem rather than trying to uh instruct or dictate the way something has to be um yeah i think there's many paths to to the to solve something um and we should give people the, the freedom to and the acceptance to 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 do things in their own way um and to listen to them because you, you never know it's like you know often i think people can get a job done in five minutes yet there might be like a whole day allocated to getting that job done, but actually when people sit down and focus, then it's actually not often it's not that hard to to get things done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Um Rosie, Adam, been so good to have you on. Fascinating conversation and uh I'm sure there's a hell of a lot more we could talk about. Um if people want to find you online, where's the best place? Adam, uh, where's the best place to come and find you for uh probably LinkedIn's probably an easy that's probably the best way of saying it. Or Inventum Group or Adam Tobias to LinkedIn is probably the easiest way of finding me. How about yeah, you, Rosie? I'm Rosie Sherry on LinkedIn or Twitter or you can find me on rosie.land. I strongly recommend people to have a look at that. It's really, really interesting. So, 
It's been a great thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you. And uh, great conversation. And well, I look forward to catching up with you both very soon. Okay. Thank you. How are we doing? Very good. Very good. good. That was really kind of a. My brain is my brain is really properly exercised by that that last conversation. Derry, what was it like for you? Yeah, I loved it. So fascinating, and I think just hearing the kind of real authentic experiences of Adam and Rosie, um, having learned so much about themselves in recent years and applying that and understanding how it's impacted them earlier in their lives. I think it's going to be so useful for people in in our golden age of leadership to hear that and reflect on what it means for them and their teams. And yeah, it was great. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I was, it was, it was great listening, fascinating listening. What I'm really keen just from that headline that you've both given to just give you a little structure to get into a little bit more detail for the listeners. So I'm going to ask you three things each. Um, and it's what resonated with you, what challenged you, and what did you take away from that that you would want to communicate to a leader in today's world? Ooh, what resonated with us, okay. what challenged us, and what we'd take away? Yeah. Resonated uh, challenge. I'm writing this down so I don't forget. What was the third one again? Uh, what would you, if there was something, a conclusion you'd take from that, that you'd want to communicate to a leader, say you were working with or supporting, yeah. what would you communicate to them? Um, Larry, do you want to go first on that one or do you want me to jump in? I'm happy to go. So what, I mean, uh, pretty much all resonated with me in various ways. Um, everything from the the journey of kind of having a child diagnosed and reflecting on yourself through to the experiences of the workplace Um, one of the pieces that really resonated for me was what Rosie said towards the end around the difficulties of speaking up in meetings and how communication styles can vary from one environment to another, one context to another, and the real need to understand how to get every member of your team, including yourself, to bring their voice into whatever it is you're talking about and make it safe for them to do so. And that's something that I've really struggled with personally over the years. I remember sitting in meetings as a junior consultant and not saying a word or forcing myself to say something and then just spending my, the entire meeting stressed about not saying anything in exactly the way that Rosie described. So that really resonated with me and I've recognized it in a lot of other people as well. So that was fascinating and not something I've reflected on properly in the past. Let's go tit for tat. So Jamie, your resonance from that? Uh, actually, funny enough, that resonance for me was 
almost on the opposite side of the the audience. Um, I, I really remember periods in my life as I've gone through that golden age and then out the other end, um, uh, where I have worked with um, a variety of different teams in different parts of the world, and it has always felt really important to give people space to hear voices. <clears throat> But how unaware I might have been of the fact that what I'm trying to give voice to or voices for may not have been anything that I could appreciate in terms of the challenges that that person or the groups, people in the groups might have felt about wanting to share their voice. So I try to make space for different cultures or different ages or different um, educational backgrounds without necessarily ever really appreciating that um, it might be that somebody felt was selective was it selective mute mutism yeah. um be be actually something that somebody physically cognitively um was dealing with in those moments and i wonder how many times i've encouraged somebody who was in deep anxiety to to speak up um and not been sympathetic or compassionate about it so that's something that really resonated with me as well shall i go on the challenge bit yeah, go for it, buddy. Because this, this, I want to get this one out of the way because I don't want to get on a soapbox. So you have to cut me off, put me on mute if I do. The educational establishment and what it's not doing that it could be doing because it's not like they lack awareness. How come we have educational establishments here and in other parts of the world that takes such a long time to catch up with what's going on in society? That really, really pisses me off. Yeah. First time Jamie's ever sworn on the podcast was two seasons in. So this must have really hit a nerve for him. I totally, I totally Sorry, agree Dave. on that front. And it's something that we, we go back and forth all the time on taking our kids out of school and homeschooling them. And it feels like there are so many imperfect solutions. And the thing that really got me from that point of view is that there's so many kids who are stressed, deeply stressed by the school environment, and they're still getting the message for most of them that what they have to do is do what they're told at school, get good exam results, go to university and get a job and work in a workplace environment that is also going to be unsuited to them and stressful. And for the vast majority of them, that is unfortunately going to be true if they follow that path. And the alternative paths really are working independently, which is more and more possible than it ever was for some people, but not really an option for a lot of people, or trying to find a workplace that actually engages with them with compassion and kindness and curiosity, which are sadly few and far between. Yeah. So it's, I don't know, I don't have answers to that, They're big questions, but I agree that the whole dynamic is something that comes in and out of my awareness on a regular basis and frustrates the hell out of me. Mm. Derry, final one. What would you, what would you take from that and that you'd want to communicate to a leader? I think I mean, we always come back to self-awareness and compassion, and those are 
as true as ever in this environment. But the point that Rosie made around meaning and purpose and an acceptance that the person in your team might just be able to see a better way of doing something than you've ever thought of and giving them the rope to do that and maybe learn from it and maybe do it better. So setting up your team members to be deeply engaged and and excited and motivated by what they're trying to achieve and giving them the space to go and try and the time to go and try and whatever time scale they need. If you can do those things, you are at least going to discover what it might take to get the best out of this person and for them to find your team a good place to be. <laughs> and the risk of doing that is they might drop some balls. They might make mistakes. And that's still just opportunities to learn. Yeah, I was going to say that, that, but that will be the opportunity to learn. So, yeah. Um, my my takeaway from that is uh, so, so slightly different from what I normally feel. This is one which I think is um, it's incumbent upon leaders in organisations, not necessarily to make up for the the bollocks of the education system, but if leaders don't make the effort to become more aware of what they are leading, and in this case, we're talking neurodiversity, which is less visible at times than other forms of diversity, which we've touched on in our series. Um, if, if, if we don't expect leaders to just get out there and do some learning, they don't have to become experts, but they need to at least be aware of what might be in the landscape that they are uh, dealing with in terms of humanity in front of them in their team their workforce their whatever it might be then i think we could point the finger at them and say you've got you've got to get your act together um because um i think great leadership can never be great leadership if it's exclusive um and this is one of the more challenging of the the inclusive dimensions i think uh, because sometimes it can be so well hidden or masked so I think some of that get some awareness is a real key message from me. Graham, what do you think? As you wrap us up. Well, I have one more question if you've got a moment for you gentlemen to just consider. We know that in the last six, seven years in particular, the concept of a mental health crisis has been well-researched, well-found, well quoted to exist within the current working world. I find myself just wondering, is the move towards neuroinclusivity a potential balancing tool for some of that mental health crisis? Um. My spontaneous reaction is that let's let's make sure we don't get the two mixed up, mm -hmm. um, because one is um, is a condition and mental health issues can affect anybody, whether they be neurotypical or neurodiverse, um, and can show up very differently depending on where you might uh, exist in any of that landscape. Um, but I think if the question is, does the 
growing awareness of the things that can impact the neurological condition of anybody, whether that be stress-related or ultimate health issues, or indeed just a better understanding of the neurostate, mean that we're going to start to see a growing awareness of how differently we all operate, whether you're on wherever you are or whatever spectrum. I think the answer is probably yes. However, I'm also seeing um, a little bit of a societal kind of push back from various different areas, which is you've got politicians saying, oh, we're, we're just lab- we're labeling everything now with, as a medical condition. And actually, people should just you know, toughen up a bit. And the ONS have got their numbers wrong, or the CIPD have got their numbers wrong. And there aren't such things as some of these neurodiverse labels that we're giving people, and there's not such a mental health crisis. And I think that's a reaction um, to what is now quite a significant growth in awareness of both health conditions and how a neurological makeup works. What are your thoughts to that, Dave? Um, I mean, it's a big, it's a big topic. My initial thought was if you think of as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if you think of the mental health crisis and specifically in relation to burnout, then I think neurodiverse people are probably more likely to suffer from burnout because the energy required, they have fewer energy reserves anyway. There's a great concept called the spoon theory of energy accounting, which is essentially that you have a limited number of spoons of energy each day when you're neurodiverse and certain activities take certain numbers of spoons and you hit the wall. And that's certainly been my experience and I've seen it in my daughter and I've seen it in many others. And the energy required to mask, to tolerate work environments that often require a level of handling of sensory overload um communication styles etc like all of that can lead i think to neurodiverse people hitting their energy uh the bottom of their energy wells faster and burnout being more of an issue so in principle awareness of neuroinclusivity particularly in the context of helping people manage their energy to avoid burnout should be beneficial so that was my that was my initial thought on that in terms of like a, a specific take on that question. Yeah, and like we always yeah. say, we'd know we all would probably we'd all agree research for us is needed more to go and explore this and those things from there. I was just intrigued to see your spontaneous mm-hmm. reaction. Yeah, so just what, uh, one final thought for me, which is again just to realize how much it bugged me when I heard it again when Rosie talked about how little research there has been into female mm. neuro, neuro, neurodiversity yeah. i thought here we go again and it's not like here we go again same old story it's like here we go. how how long is it going to be before some of these institutions that we rely on start to recognize there's a deficit in understanding for 50 percent of the population mm. <laughs> like yeah. come on Big <laughs> yeah it's baffling go and go and support the autistic girls network which is run by Kathy yep. Russell and does great stuff. Wonderful. 
gentlemen, as always, it's been a pleasure to be in your company. And yeah, just such a huge, important topic is the thing that I've definitely left with today. Thanks, fellas. Thank you, gents. find any of the subjects we cover in this podcast spark inspiration curiosity or concern within you do drop us a line details are in the comments below and we'll be happily there to listen and see how we can offer the best support for you Thank you.